Debbie was grandma's little girl and I was grandma's little boy. That's just the way it was in our family. And I think I got to see a good picture of how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a believer. And it's sad when we have to say goodbye to our loved ones, you know, and we watch that coffin go into the ground and there seems to be a finality about it, like you're saying goodbye forever. But we're not. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of heaven, that salvation is something that is real, very real. And i seen a picture between my dad, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, and thinks that he's too bad that God could never forgive him for the things he's done anyways. And then on the other hand, I had my Auntie Clara, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And I got to see a picture of both of them in the last week of how the spirit of the living God can, can bring comfort and hope and peace on one hand. And my auntie was able to function through all the planning of the funeral arrangements and, and still be able to smile and talk with family. And on the other side was my dad, who couldn't take part in anything, and I was just glad he made it to the funeral. You know, because to him, it was like, that's it, my mom's gone and I'll never see her again. And so I think we need to be reminded that the Spirit of the living God not only fills us up so that we can be a light to the world, but also in those quiet moments when we're alone and we're heavy laden, you know, he's there too. God is there to bring us comfort, to bring us peace. And so I'm just testifying that, yeah, I've seen the Holy Spirit work in real ways in the last couple of weeks. And while death brings sadness, there's also joy. And praise God that Jesus Christ has come and given us the way to the Father. So, with that little sharing, how did that all begin? Well, we're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, and we're going to start verses 1 to 4 and then 14 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then Peter got up to address the crowd. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Now listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Thank you, Lord. Well, we are going through the book of Acts, as you know, if you've been here for several Sundays. And uh, we're wanting to both understand but also experience what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ on mission. And right in the first chapter of Acts, we came upon this commission of Jesus to his followers. He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that verse provides kind of the literary framework for the whole book of Acts. And the rest of the book is about the followers of Christ being his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it begins in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, what we've just read, manifested in wind and in fire and in speech. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power, the church is born and the mission is launched. Now, when we came to this passage uh, a few weeks ago, should I do something different with the mic, by the way? Should I? Because I can use one of these if that's helpful. Okay, it's, it's ringing up here. I'm not sure if it's ringing for you. It is? Okay. Try to, try to adjust the hearing aid in your head and tone that out. Some of us are studying with our small groups the book of Acts as we kind of walk through it in sermons. And when we came to this passage in Acts chapter 2 a few weeks ago, it raised some questions in our Bible study about the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he does and about the gifts and what it means to be filled with the Spirit and what's the deal with speaking in tongues and all of that. And so I thought it might be helpful to pause and, and devote some time in a morning or two to the Holy Spirit and his ministry and his person. So we're going we're gonna to do that because his power and his presence really thread throughout, throughout the whole book of Acts. I mean, he shows up constantly in this book. And, and having some understanding of the Holy Spirit gives us a little bit of context for understanding the whole of the book of Acts. So we're just going to jump right in. Who is the Holy Spirit? I want to notice a couple of things, first of all, biblically. And the first thing is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force. He is not a power. He is a person. When Jesus was speaking about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, but in John chapter 16 particularly, Jesus used the pronouns he, him, his 11 times just in one paragraph. Jesus never spoke about the Holy Spirit as an it. Never. Um, from a lot of other biblical references that we're not going to give to you this morning for time's sake, but we know that the Holy Spirit, for example, has knowledge, has a will, that he chooses and acts, that he has a mind, that he can be lied to, he has emotions, he can be grieved, he can be insulted, he speaks, he intercedes, all these things that require personality to be able to do. And so the Holy Spirit, biblically, is indisputably a person. But secondly, the Holy Spirit is divine. That is, he is God. He's not acting on behalf of God. He is not God's errand boy. He doesn't work for God. He is divine. His deity is assumed throughout the New Testament. For example, several occasions where the Father and the Son and the the Spirit uh, occur together or are mentioned together in the Scripture. At Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks explicitly of Jesus' divine sonship, and the Holy Spirit descends. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in creation, 
where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was brooding or hovering over the face of the waters. And the testimony of Colossians 1, John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, that Jesus is the agent through whom things were created, that he is, in fact, the creator. You see them uh, together in God's work of saving people from sin and to relationship with himself. Uh, 1 Peter 1 verse 2 says, We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Um, Two more. Jesus said, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And you have the benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So throughout the New Testament, you have Father and Son and Spirit mentioned together, acting together, working together. The most explicit declaration of the deity of the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 5, where the Apostle Peter says to the deceitful Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So the Holy Spirit is a person, distinct as a person from the Father and the Son, but in essential oneness with them. And hence we have the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God. Now the question, of course, is what does that have to do with anything? Right? It's, it's theological, it's doctrinal. Like, what does it have to do with anything today? The personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit has everything to do with your life on this day. The Holy Spirit is God's actual, personal, constant presence in the life of every Christian. Okay? God has given himself to you. And there's all kinds of implications of that. There are implications of love. Imagine God's love for you that he would make you his home. There are implications of strength, that the supremely powerful God lives within you. There are implications of presence. That means that wherever you are, God is. Now consider his love and his power and his presence. When you are up in the middle of the night in pain or with worry or with a child, God is there. He's in the moment. When you go to work this week, God goes with you. Okay, what are you going to face this week? What, what pressures await you in the office? God steps into it with you because his spirit is within you. What physical issues are you concerned about today? God is sharing those with you. He's in the middle of that with you because he himself lives within What situation are you in that you think, I can't do this anymore? You lack strength, you lack wisdom, you lack hope. God's presence within you by his spirit means that the one who is the very perfection of strength and of wisdom and sovereignty is in you, with you, in your circumstances. His strength is for you. His wisdom is for you. The Bible says God has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. It says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Have you felt like God is far away? 
Have you felt that because maybe you have not prayed well or read your Bible as often that God has moved out and that to reconnect with God requires a long and arduous journey back to God? Do you ever think in terms of getting back to God? God never leaves nor forsakes. And if you find yourself hungering for God again, the Bible says, be still. Know that I am God. Learn to listen again. Learn to to know his presence within your heart and to hear him speak words of love and challenge and of wisdom again. Because the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit, which means the reality of God himself fully living within, that is what moves this whole Christianity thing from religion down to the deeper level of relationship. The Holy Spirit is not just a moral compass. He's not some kind of new personality software that gets downloaded when we become a Christian. He is the reality of God in your life. God has taken up residence in your life when you are a follower of Jesus. That's what the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is all about. There are physical implications of that as well. When you recognize that God lives within us, it makes our bodies sacred What we do to and with our bodies no longer has simply to do with taking care of ourselves, but has to do with our relationship with God. The Bible says explicitly, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Does that mean that any changes are required in how we treat our bodies and what we do with them? How are you treating your temple? I know that if I don't sleep well or if I'm undisciplined in terms of what I eat for any length of time, that plays itself out in my relationship with God because it becomes easier to sleep than to pray. I don't have the mind to be able to focus on the Scripture or on my work or on my relationships with the body of Christ. That's why the Bible says whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. We're in a pretty good season right now to think about that. We are in the season of Lent, which is the preparation season for Good Friday and Easter. And it's not uncommon for people in the season of Lent to give something up for Lent. Have you ever wondered why people do that? The idea of giving something up for Lent is a form of fasting. And fasting is not a way of scoring spiritual points with God. Fasting is one way of saying that we will not let ourselves be controlled by anything. And fasting from something quickly reveals whether something has a hold on us or not. One example, uh, every morning I have a cup of coffee. And it's not often that I have more than one cup of coffee in a day. And yet I have noticed that if I don't have that cup of coffee... By afternoon, I feel somewhat lightheaded and have a headache. And I'm wondering if my one coffee a day has made my body dependent on that shot of caffeine. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you are saying, what, only one shot of caffeine? I'm giving up coffee for a week right now just because I want to test and see what kind of hold coffee has on me. Um, I want to see if I am, in fact, physically addicted to coffee. Because my body has one Lord only. And fasting is a way of testing ourselves to see if there is something else that has a hold on us. For you, it might be something else. It might be coffee. It might be TV. It might be sports or sex or food or a certain kind of food. 
or whatever indulgence. And I'd encourage you to give it a shot. Try surrendering it for a time and seeing if something has a hold on you. And you will know if it has a hold on you by one of two things. Either it's really, really hard, or you start justifying things to yourself. Like, I'm giving up coffee, but I'm going to drink more black tea and Coke. Right? Well, it's not coffee. Well, my body still needs the caffeine. And when we start doing that, oh, that wasn't, that's, that's not really dessert or whatever. So... What we eat and what we drink is a spiritual issue, and so is health and fitness, and so is sex. In fact, the passage of the Bible where it says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit is a passage talking about sexual purity. So you see that the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit, which means the personal presence of God within each Christ follower, has everything to do with the day-to-day living. Circumstances, trials that we face, our bodies, So that's who he is, and that's why it matters who he is. Um, What does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do? The New Testament, after the Gospels, is the story of the Holy Spirit in action, convicting, saving, empowering, transforming, working in people individually and corporately, revealing and applying the truth of God's saving the world through Jesus. The great redemption of God effected through Jesus Christ is now carried on through the church and it is the Holy Spirit who is the life of the church. He is its heir. He's its lifeblood. And you see that in the book of Acts, which is why we're talking about this today. Chapter 1 of Acts is the transition between the gospel age and the age of the church. Jesus in that time spends 40 days with his disciples, teaches them about the kingdom of God, But before he leaves them and ascends into heaven, he tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the gift my father promised. You will be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, in obedience, they waited. And it took place ten days later. They're gathered in one house, which we read this morning. Suddenly there was a sound of a violent wind, and it was a sound from heaven. They knew somehow that this was God. This was the fulfillment of God's promise. They heard wind. They saw fire that separated into tongues and rested upon each one of them. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. And this was the fulfillment of Jesus' word, that the Spirit would come to them, and they would receive power to be his witnesses. And after that, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit holds the book of Acts together. And since the book of Acts is the history of the church, the Holy Spirit is not just the theme of the book of Acts, but he is the theme or he is what holds the church together always. He is the life and power of the church. He's the creative genius behind the whole enterprise called the church, then and now. The church is his creation. And it's as we read through the book of Acts that we understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what does he do? In Acts, five things, very quickly. First, he created the church. The idea of a Christ-centered faith community united together. In the ten days between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, Jesus' followers were together. But when the Spirit came, he bound them together. They weren't just in the same room. He bound them together. There was a fundamental unity of the Spirit. And among Christians today, there is a fundamental unity. 
And we don't act like it sometimes, and history will attest to that. But the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries and across the globe is nonetheless one church, one body, to use the biblical metaphor. And when we became a Christian, we became a part of that body. It's the same event. The follower of Christ is to be one with his body. 1 Corinthians 12 says, you were all baptized by one spirit into one body. And so the church, the body of Christ, is the creation of the, of the Holy Spirit. What else does he do? He empowers people to speak effectively about Jesus. Notice the pattern in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit falls upon the Christians and they begin speaking. And the crowd says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives his defense to the religious leaders and says to them about Jesus, there is salvation in no one else. And the leaders are astonished by his boldness. This is not the Peter that they know. Later in that chapter, the Christians pray for boldness to speak, and the room in which they are meeting is, filled with, is shaken, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 6, Stephen, a man full of grace and of the Holy Spirit. When people tried to dispute with him, we read that they could not withstand the wisdom or the spirit with which he spoke. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit tells Philip to preach to the Ethiopian official, and he becomes a believer. In chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is filled with the Spirit and immediately begins proclaiming in the synagogue that Jesus is the Son of God, and Saul grows more and more powerful, more and more influential. Last verse of chapter 13 and the first verse of chapter 14. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. That's how you know that the Holy Spirit is present in a life and in a church. Because we begin to speak effectively, powerfully, about Jesus Christ. We proclaim him in preaching, but in conversation as well. Jesus had said of the Holy Spirit that he would testify about himself. He would testify about Jesus. Like I said earlier, the sure sign that the Holy Spirit is present in a church is not that we're talking about the Holy Spirit, that we're talking about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit empowers people to, to speak powerfully the word, uh, the truth of Jesus. Third, the Spirit changes the hearts of people. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, had her heart open so that she could receive the Word of God. The, the centurion Cornelius, in chapter 10, and his household were enabled by the Spirit to respond to the Word that Peter spoke. The 3,000 at Pentecost, they were cut to the heart by the work of the Spirit. And they were enabled to receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one becomes a Christian unless the Holy Spirit has made them one. Okay, no one becomes a Christian unless the Holy Spirit has acted upon us in such a way to enable us to understand and believe the truth of Jesus Christ. And that is the reality of grace at work. I am a Christian because God's Spirit has made me one, not because I understood the gospel and made a decision, but because God changed my heart. Okay, I am not the actor. I am the receiver of God's action. And if you are a Christian at all, that is the affirmation of God's love for you 
in coming to you and changing your heart by his spirit to respond to Christ. It's all grace. The spirit creates the church. He empowers to speak of Jesus. He changes hearts. Fourth, he gives direction. In chapter 13, he directs the praying community in Antioch to set aside Paul, or Saul as he was known then, and Barnabas for ministry to the Gentiles. It was as they were praying and fasting and worshiping that the Spirit gave them that direction. In Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, it's the Spirit who very specifically directs Paul and his companions. No, don't go there. No, don't go there either. But you need to go to Macedonia. The Spirit gave them direction at every turn. And as a part of that, fifth, the Spirit gives wisdom. You see, in Acts chapter 15, there is a huge theological issue facing the church, and that is that Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Judaism and is the Messiah to the Jews, but we have all these Gentiles who are coming to faith, and what is the relationship between Gentile and Jew? How do Gentiles need to respond to the Judaism of whom Christ is Messiah? So they had this long conversation about it, and at the end of the day, They drafted their decision, and in that letter they said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that this is how it should play out. The Holy Spirit had given them wisdom as they sought to understand and wrestle through this this joint board meeting that they had all day on that Saturday. The Spirit gave them wisdom as they came together and sought the furtherance of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ, the Spirit guided and gave wisdom as they sought to do that. So these five things the Spirit does. He created the church. He he empowers to speak about Christ. He changes hearts. He guides. He gives wisdom. How would you like to see those five things, reality here, in your life and in our church, bound together in a unity of faith, testifying powerfully to Christ, being guided and being given wisdom by the Spirit, How would you like to see that played out here? The question then is, how can we make the Holy Spirit present and active in our church? As I've read through Acts, and you've heard this from me before, some of you, I've been struck by the fact that the Holy Spirit was never asked for in Acts. To my knowledge, there is no place in Acts or anywhere in the New Testament where you see the believers gathering together and praying that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Now, that's pretty significant, I think. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask. We should. But I sometimes hear it expressed that we would see God act here in greater ways if only we would be asking more for the Holy Spirit to come. And it's implied, I think, that if we aren't specifically, regularly asking for the Holy Spirit to fill us, that means that we're doing things on our own strength or we're not genuine Christians or something. I don't know. Often in in prayer or in conferences or in churches, you'll hear people pray, Lord, send your spirit upon us. And there's nothing wrong with praying that, but I do notice that Peter and Paul and James and the others never did that, not that we read anyway. And yet he was very obviously present and active with them. So what's the deal? If what we need as a church is for the Holy Spirit to come again in power here today among us, what do we need to do for that to happen? That's the question I have here. If the Holy Spirit can't be summoned and isn't normally asked for, then it's good for us to ask, in the book of Acts, when does the Holy Spirit come? The Holy Spirit comes on the people of God when believers are giving themselves fully 
to the mission of Jesus Christ. When Christians are committed fully to being witnesses for Jesus Christ to a lost and often hostile world, when we humbly surrender ourselves and our lives to the service of Christ because we take seriously his command to be his witnesses, then it's not necessary to ask for the Holy Spirit to come because he just come. And if we want the Holy Spirit to come again upon us here at Thornhill Baptist Church, then the key word for us is not revival, nor repentance, nor even prayer. The key word is obedience. The Holy Spirit is interested in our obedience to the mission of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait. And it took 10 days, but when the Spirit came, he found them waiting in obedience to the command of Christ. The Holy Spirit rushed in with wind and fire, and history has not been the same since. In chapter 3, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit as he defends himself to the religious leaders for his proclamation of the resurrection of Christ. It's in the context of obedience. At the end of chapter 4, the believers are praying Give us boldness to speak about Jesus, Lord. They didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit came and filled them again, and they were given boldness to speak of Christ. And we think sometimes that if only the Holy Spirit would come, then we would be able to step out and do our ministry effectively. And I think that's backwards. I think that God says, if only you would step out and, and seek first the kingdom of God and proclaim Christ, then the Holy Spirit will move in faster than you can think, and we would know him and experience him. When we seek the lost, when we surrender to God's lordship, the Spirit comes. And so we ask this. Do you long for the Holy Spirit to be visibly and actively present here? Do you? Me too. In fact, I'm convinced that revival is beginning to happen again because, precisely, because of the evidence that we see of some of the things that I've talked about. Um, I see more people, and maybe I'm just noticing more, but I see more people active in ministry to people who are far from God now than I have in my other eight and a half years being here. Um, We're going to hear about some of those next week, by the way. And someone said just the other day, I see God at work in more people's lives right now than I've ever seen at Thornhill. Um, And you can take that with a grain of salt, but that's somebody's comment. They see God at work here in the lives of people. And that is evidence, I think, that the Holy Spirit is coming as we begin again to refocus on this mission of seeing people come to faith in Christ, serving the poor, okay, speaking the truth about Christ, demonstrating the love of Christ. Then we will see increasing evidence of the reality of the Holy Spirit. If it is the Holy Spirit that we want to see, then let us pursue with everything that we are and everything that we have the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the demonstration of the love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there for this morning, which means that we're going to come back in a couple of Sundays. Nick is preaching next week's Sunday. He's coming back from El Salvador today. Somebody help me out here. Is it today that he's coming back? So he's going to preach next week in Acts, but also in the context of his trip. So in two Sundays, we're going to come back to this idea of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk then about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and their place 
in the context of the church. And I'm going to do my best to make it as practical as possible. So we might have things to do on that day. But if you don't know your gift, we want to help you discover that. And we'll talk a little bit about the gift of tongues, which people often have questions about as well. So I'll save that for that time. I do want to ask you, however, in... We're going to bring the service to a close over the next 20 minutes with song and prayer. But to take with you today just these thoughts about the Holy Spirit, ask yourself this question. Um, If God lives in me by his personal Holy Spirit, how do the implications that Ken talked about play out? What does that have to do with my body? What does that have to do with what I fear? What does that have to do with me in the workplace or the school or the home or the community? What does it have to do with when I'm facing this health issue or this crisis? God, God is within. Astonishing. You will not leave him here when you go from here this morning. How does that shape your week and your thoughts and your perspective? Let me pray. Oh, Lord God, we need your Holy Spirit, and I thank you that you have given him. I thank you that when we have bowed the knee to Christ and confessed our sins, you have given your Holy Spirit to live within us. You've given yourself to us. But I thank you that there is a fullness to the experience of the Holy Spirit that you also want to give us. And we, this morning, we want to commit ourselves to seeking first the kingdom of God in our hearts, in our bodies, in our families, in our work, in this church, around this church, in the world. We want to commit ourselves to that, and we trust that as we do that, you will pour out your Spirit in a way that is is fresh and new, in a way that we long for. And so, yes, I do pray for the Holy Spirit to come and fill But that prayer is the very same as praying, Lord, help us now to seek first the kingdom. And I pray now that as we hear um, some testimony of how we've demonstrated the love of Christ, as we hear truth sung, that you would be blessed and that we would know your spirit on this day and grant us more. Through Jesus Christ, to whom the Spirit testifies, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing uh, the hymn. It's a, it's a the simple song, "Spirit of the Living God," and so we're going to do with this song what I said they never do in the Bible, and that's pray for the Spirit to come. But that's all right. Um, we're going to sing this song. This is a prayer. So let us pray this as a congregation, and we're going to sing it two times, and the first time we're going to sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me, because you may need the Spirit to work more significantly in your life. The second time we are going to sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us, and we're praying for the church as we do that. So let's sing it. It's number 90 in your hymnal, Spirit of the living God. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me.
fall afresh on me.